If you will turn in your Bibles to the second chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. 400 years. It had been 400 years since God's people had heard God's voice through one of his prophets. And suddenly God was on the move. You'll remember that he sends Gabriel now from his presence to Jerusalem, to the temple, to where Zacharias is inside offering up incense at the golden altar. And you'll remember that he tells him that Elizabeth and you are going to have a son and you're to name him John and he is to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And you remember that Zacharias struggled with believing that he and Elizabeth had wanted a child their entire life, but now they were old, past childbearing age. And, and so you remember that he, he, he stumbles in embracing that truth of the message that had been sent to him. And so you remember there was a consequence, and the consequence was he wasn't going to be able to talk the entire time that Elizabeth was pregnant. And, and so we, we watched now as Elizabeth conceived, and, and then she was with child. And six months later, You'll remember that Gabriel is on the move again. And this time he is dispatched from the throne room to Nazareth. And to a young girl named Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph. And you remember that Gabriel comes and tells her, Mary, you have been chosen by God and blessed to to be the mother of the Messiah and you are going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And, and you remember what Mary's response was. Mary's response was, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. May it be to me as uh, you have declared. And we see this absolute total surrender of Mary to God's will in her life. Mary had no idea what it meant. She had no idea of all of the details and how do you raise the Messiah's son. And, and no doubt there was an infinite number of questions that she would have. But she simply just trusted God. She just simply said, here I am, Lord, and do with me as you will. And so the angel departs and, and then suddenly it is, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? You know, it, it's that reality of the circumstances now. Because following God's will is never going to be easy. Amen? And so suddenly now it is, who am I going to tell? And how will they believe me of these circumstances? And you'll remember that she brings to remembrance now that the angel had told her that Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And so suddenly it says, with haste, she departs from, from Nazareth and goes to Judea to visit Elizabeth. And no doubt as she is heading to Elizabeth's uh, house, and this is a, a 70 to 80 mile trek that she makes, her big concern is how do I explain this to Elizabeth? And how is she ever going to believe me? How is anybody ever going to believe me? And that was the, the trial of her soul. And, and as she comes into Elizabeth's presence, 
figuring out how she's going to bring this up and declare. You'll remember that at Mary's greeting that John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb and the Holy Spirit falls upon Elizabeth and Elizabeth now declares, Mary, blessed are you in the fruit of your womb. You are highly favored. And how is it that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me? And suddenly now the message that she gives to Mary is, I know that you're pregnant. It's of God. This is awesome. Hallelujah. And Mary's like, what? How awesome. I have someone that that can hold my hand, that can pray, that understands that this is of the Lord and God is doing something magnificent and crazy and exciting and scary all at once. And so for three months, she is able now to shelter there with Elizabeth and to be encouraged and to pray. And, and now, finally, it's time for Elizabeth to deliver and it's time also for Mary to depart. And Mary has to head back now to her life that she hit the hold button on. <laughs> she just went, pause, I'm out. But now she has to come back. And she has to pick up her life. And she has a conversation that is waiting back there for her with Joseph. And so let's follow Luke now as we continue. He continues on with the story of Elizabeth and Zacharias. The baby is born healthy, amazing. Eight days later, it's time for the circumcision and the naming. And you'll remember that the name customary would always be the name of the father, the firstborn son. And so they are ready to name him and they ask what the name is. And Elizabeth says, John. And they're like, whoa what no that's not your husband's name and isn't it supposed to be that and and she's like no it's john and they're like elizabeth what are you doing zacharias do you hear what she's saying she's trying to name listen your firstborn son not after you and so this and besides you don't even have anybody in your family named john this is crazy and you'll remember that he asks for a writing tablet and he writes, his name is John. <laughs> and at that moment now, his mouth is loosed and he's able to speak. And you remember that the very first words out of his mouth are just praise to God, just blessing to God. And we talked about when God chastises us, does it make us bitter or better? Does it make it bitter or better? When God corrects us and gives us that correction, do we grumble against him and, and shake our fists at him? Or do we repent and humble ourselves and say, I am sorry, I get it. And do we draw near to him and are we restored in relationship? Because that's what chastisement is about. That's what correction is about that at the end of the correction that we're tight together with the Lord and that we've drawn near him. And so we saw the blessings flow out of his mouth and then the Holy Spirit falls upon Zacharias and he prophesies over the Messiah in the ministry and life of the Messiah. And then he ends it by prophesying of his son who is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah that's going to prepare a nation's heart to receive the Savior of the world. And 
And so John the Baptist uh, now grows. And, and so here in this second chapter, we're going to pick back up again with Mary and Joseph. And let's watch now how Luke approaches this. Chapter 2, verse 1, Gospel of Luke, and it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I love that in verse 1 where it says, It came to pass. <laughs> I love that, uh, that phrase in Scripture because it reminds me that no matter when I am in difficulty and hardship, that that's temporary that it is going to pass. And in this morning, if you are in a place of hardship in your life, if you are in a trial, I want you to know that it'll come to pass. It will come to pass. Sometimes it feels like this is going to be forever. Or it's the end of the world and this is more than I can take. But I want you to know it will come to pass. And so be encouraged. So it says that it came to pass now that in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus, he is the emperor over the Roman Empire. But I want you to know that even in that, that there is a tremendous backdrop to what has happened on the world stage. The world stage is still reeling from the catastrophic changes that have taken place within the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire used to actually be the republic of Rome. And for hundreds of years, it operated on the fact that it is to be the law that rules over the people and that it is not to be a person that rules over the people. That the power was in the law and that the Senate, they were the ones who were responsible for taking care of the law. And so this republic existed and the leadership and the politicians and the generals and, and all of those, they, they worked together through the Senate to be able to have this republic where no man is above the law. But Julius Caesar was the one that, that began to threaten the structure of the republic. He was a brilliant military commander, and he started to rise in his power through his military campaigns and successes. And then he started to form alliances with some of the senators that were there. And the rest of the Senate began to feel threatened by Julius Caesar's aggressive grab towards authority and power. And so you will remember that in order to preserve the republic, there was a group of senators that assassinated Julius Caesar on the Ides of March, on March 15th, hoping now to dispel this rise of a single man that would take down the Senate and the structure of the republic. Rather than securing the republic, it further destabilized the republic. And you'll remember that there was a triumvirate, three military leaders that were then instituted and to put into place. Cassius Octavius was one, Mark Anthony was the other, and Marcus Lepidus. They were the triumvirate that were put into place. But what happened then is these three started to launch into civil wars with one another, each of them trying to take over control of the Roman Empire. Marcus Lepidus, he is the first one that is dispatched, and the two that are left standing is Mark Anthony and Cassius Octavius. And so 
these two start to build their fortifications to come and to bring their armies against one another. Mark Anthony goes to Egypt and involves himself with Cleopatra and combines the forces that he has with the armies of Egypt. Cassius Octavius continues to build his military and they come to this final battle, this battle where they bring all of the armies together against each other to settle this. And this was known as the battle at Actium. It took them a year to combine their forces into one location to square off with one another. Mark Anthony and the powers of Egypt collected 400 warships that he brought from Egypt. He brings 100,000 soldiers and he brings 12,000 cavalrymen and they are aligned. Octavius and Cassius Octavius, he brings 300 warships. He's got 100 less warships. And he's got 80,000 soldiers instead of 100,000. He's got 12,000 cavalry as well. And they line up for this battle and it begins. Now, the military superiority of the 400 ships by over the 300 ships is neutralized by the fact that the 300 ships that Octavius has, they are smaller and faster and more mobile and so they decimate the 400 ships the soldiers with using superior strategic military strategy Octavius wipes out Mark Anthony's entire army and he becomes now the sole general in authority the senate acknowledges him as the emperor and the republic is gone. The Roman Republic is gone. And now the Roman Empire has become. He is above the law. And he is now the emperor. And whatever he says goes. And so this is 25 years later. For the last two and a half decades, they have lost the republic. And now an emperor has absolute complete authority. This Octavius and Cassius Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus. That is who Caesar Augustus is. This battle took place 25 years earlier. And now through his administration, we see that he continues to tighten his control on the Roman Empire. He orders a census. This isn't the first census that he has ordered. He has ordered many other censuses, but the other censuses dealt primarily with who are the Roman citizens. He wanted to know who the Roman citizens were throughout uh, the entire empire. And also he wanted to know the uh, the young men that were in the empire so that he could create a draft into the army. The nation of Israel never had to send their young men into the Roman army, and so they were never part of the census. But this census now that we see in front of us, this was now Caesar Augustus's census that would number the households and the people because this was going to be the basis of the tax now and the poll tax that he would start to institute upon the entire Roman Empire. And so Israel, for the first time, has to comply with a Roman census that takes place. And so the Republic is lost. The world is now reeling underneath the fact that there is an emperor with absolute authority that is not only above the law, he is the law. 
And so these were turbulent times now within the world. It says that this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So we have Quirinius was governing Syria. This is another historical anchor that's in the scriptures. We have extra biblical evidence that Quirinius was in fact the governor over Syria during this time period. It says in verse 4 that Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed wife who was with child. So last we left off, Mary, it's like one of those serial stories, back at the ranch you know, meanwhile here. Now last time we had left Mary this was now uh, six months uh, earlier. She was three months pregnant, and she was leaving Elizabeth's house to now go back to Bethlehem and to try and explain to Joseph all that had happened, and, uh, or to go back to Nazareth, rather, to explain to Joseph all that had happened. And Luke just jumps right forwards to where now Mary and Joseph are headed to Bethlehem in order to be registered. And so how did that conversation go? with Mary when Mary gets back and tries to explain. Well, Luke just jumps right over it, but Matthew's gospel gives us a little bit of an indication of what happened uh, with uh, their conversation. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child uh, of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So Mary comes and makes her way back to Nazareth. And there is Joseph waiting for her. Remember that she up and leaves very quickly. It says, in fact, with haste that she departed uh, from Nazareth and she is just gone. They are betrothed. They're engaged. And suddenly Mary says, hey, Joe, got to go. <laughs> and off she goes and, and leaves him. And now she comes back. And I wonder about that meeting. And I wonder about the look that they give each other at the moment they see each other for the first time. And I wonder if Mary smiled, but do you know how when somebody smiles, but there is still a heaviness that is in their soul because they've got a serious situation or they've got bad news that they have to deliver? The face is smiling, but the heart is not connected to the face. And Mary now has to approach Joseph. I, I wonder if Mary was hopeful that she wouldn't even need to have the conversation at all. I mean, she had been concerned probably about the conversation with Elizabeth, and she gets to Elizabeth's house, and at the very sound of her voice, the baby flips, and Elizabeth tells her, oh, that's awesome, you're pregnant, this is God. And, and so maybe Mary is hoping that when she sees Joseph, Joseph's going to go, Mary, the Lord told me it's the baby of the Lord, it's awesome, this is great, <laughs> let's go. And so she's like, and there is no, <laughs> it's like, hi, are we good? 
You've been gone a long time. I see you put a little weight on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can we talk? Is this a good time? <laughs> Maybe I'll come back later. So, Mary, what's up? Wow. Um, okay, you have to believe me. <laughs> Joseph, this is really important. You have to believe me. I have not been unfaithful, but I am pregnant. And the angel came from God, Gabriel, and he told me that I'm going to have a son and that it's going to be the Messiah. And I went to Mary's house, and she's pregnant, and, and, and the angel visited her husband Zacharias in the temple and I know this is hard to believe but but I love you and I hope that you're good with this <laughs> you're not good with this and I can just imagine Joseph can you imagine Joseph because this is what I imagine Joseph I, I imagine Joseph's like what really that's what you want me to believe? You want me to believe that, that there's been no infidelity, you're pregnant, and this is a God thing. <laughs> and, and I expect that where he gets to is to the point where he finally ends up with, okay, Mary, can you just do me a favor? Can you just stop? with the whole God story pregnant thing for a second. Can you just tell me what happened? Just tell me that you just had a momentary lapse, that there had been somebody at the well that you had been visiting, in the, and it was just an indiscretion, and that you're sorry, and just ask for forgiveness. I mean... Can we just get real? Don't I deserve at least just an honest answer? Will you just be honest with me and just tell me? <sighs> okay. You're sticking with your story. But I don't even know. I am not going to my family and telling them <laughs> that you're pregnant with God's child <laughs> and that you have not been unfaithful. And, and it says here that Joseph, being a just man, decides to put her away privately. She is pregnant. It's not Joseph's child. That's the reality of Joseph's world. And here is the fact that now, because uh, she is pregnant, it is scandalous to the reputation of both of them. If Joseph clears himself, he would put her away publicly. That means that he would divorce her because in order for them to break up their engagement, they need to go through a formal divorce. And so the accusation is going to have to be recorded. And so if he charges her publicly... What he is saying is, she's pregnant, it's not mine, I have maintained my integrity, I have walked above reproach, uh, and this has nothing to do with me. And then he publicly exonerates himself. 
but he throws Mary underneath the bus. He trashes her. And then on top of that, even possibly worse, because she is now guilty of adultery, and according to the Mosaic law, the punishment for adultery is stoning. But if he puts her away privately, he doesn't publicly accuse her of infidelity, then it looks like he is the one that got her pregnant, and now they are breaking up because of their relational discord over the whole matter, and that he himself is the one that has had the moral failure. And it says that Joseph, being a just man, he loves her. He wants to cover over her sin. He chooses to put her away privately. And it says that as he is thinking about these things here, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... I love that. He titles, he speaks to him, Joseph, son of David. He reminds him of his character. He reminds him of the royal blood that is in him in the way in which he is acting in a noble fashion here. But he reminds him of his noble character, son of David. He says, do not be afraid, to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so the angel tells him that Mary is pregnant, it is true, and that it is of the Holy Spirit. And I think Joseph goes, what? She was telling the truth? <laughs> Have you ever been so sure that you're 100% right and then find out that you're 100% wrong? Has that ever happened in your life? It's happened to me many times where I am like, I'm all in on this. I am 100% certain. And you find out that you are completely wrong. And that's exactly what happens with Joseph here. And it, and it says that he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And so we see that as the angel is speaking to Joseph, he is solidifying all the same things that Mary had told him, that Gabriel had said, she's going to have a son. His name is going to be Jesus. All of the things, bam, 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 bam. Every single one of them now confirmed uh, by the angel of the Lord in this dream. And it says that, uh, that immediately after upon, he wakes up and he goes to Mary. And I would love to have seen that scene when Joseph comes to Mary and he's got the look in his eyes now of I'm sorry and I believe you. And Mary, when she looks up and sees him coming, not with the hurt and the frustration and the confusion and the anger that had been in his eyes the last time that she had seen him, but now a different Joseph shows up. And it's a Joseph that says, Mary, I'm sorry I didn't believe you. I love you. God spoke to me. It's all good. I have no idea what all of this means, but you know what? We're in it together, and let's roll. And what an awesome moment that had to have been where Mary and Joseph are now 
in it together. Who knows what this means? There's no guarantees. There's no promises. We didn't get a set of instructions with all of this, but, but we're going to take it and roll it out together one day at a time, and we'll figure it out. But at least we've got the two of us together. And so they're united completely, faith walking. I love the way that Mary said, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. And I love the way that Joseph went all in as well. God, whatever your will is, I'm, I'm in it as well. If it trashes my character, it trashes my character. If it ruins my reputation, it ruins my reputation. I don't care. I just want your will in my life. I want you to know that following God's will in your life doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Amen? And it also doesn't mean that it's going to flow with culture and with community and with recognition and with praise. So oftentimes, following God means to go against uh, the culture, to go against the way that normally things are done and what everybody else is doing. And there will be a burden and a hardship of carrying God's will in your life. But God will help you every single step of the way. And so... Mary's prayers are answered because no doubt she had prayed, God, you have to help me with Joseph. You have got to help me with Joseph. And God helps her with Joseph. And the two of them are together. And so fast forward now. Six months, Mary is done with her pregnancy. She's at full term. It's nine months. And it's at the same time that the decree is given for Joseph to go and register. Underneath Roman law, she would not have to go. Just the man, just the heads of the households that had to go in the census. And so I wonder if they had a conversation and how that conversation went of, Mary, I know you're nine months pregnant, but I got to go register. I'll be as quick as I can. I'll get back as fast as I can, and I'll see you later. And she says, oh, no, you are not leaving me here, you know, by myself. I am coming with you where you go. I am going. And I wonder if, if that was the conversation that they had or or I wonder if Joseph said, Mary, I got to go, but I can't bear the thought of not taking you with me. And I cannot leave you here behind. And even though it'll be hard, let's do this together. You come with me and I'll be by your side the whole way. And so the two of them go together and make a very difficult journey. It's the second time now that Mary has had to make this journey in her pregnancy. She has to go back to Judea again. Bethlehem is in Judea, and Judea was also where Elizabeth and Zacharias lived as well. And so they head off now to go and register. It says in verse 6, And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so we don't know any of the details. Was there anybody there to help Mary? She's a young girl. This is her firstborn child. But she brings forth her child. And, uh, and now we see that 
Uh, that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, swaddling cloths are strips of, uh, of cloth, and these strips of cloth are linen. These are what were used to prepare a body for the grave, and so they were readily uh, available in that day and time. But the baby is given a taco wrap in these swaddling cloths uh, now, and, and he's laid into a feed trough. And there is baby Jesus. It is interesting that the very first garment that Jesus has on him is grave clothes. And it points forwards to the very purpose that he came. He came as the Lamb of God to lay down his life, to take away the sins of the world. And so, verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So in Bethlehem, this is where there were tremendous flocks and pastures that sit. Bethlehem sits up on the ridge on the top of this hill. It's a city on a hill. And then underneath that hill is all of this pasture land. This is where the flocks are kept that are to be used for the sacrifices at the temple. And so here we've got the shepherds that would watch over these flocks day and night there and also year round. And so here they are watching over their flocks. It is interesting that Jesus is the good shepherd and we are the flock. And here we see that the good shepherd's birth is going to be announced to the shepherds that are watching over the sacrificial flock for the temple. And so it says now, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. And then suddenly it all went dark again. Boom. And it's like, what just happened? I mean, can you imagine you and a couple of your co-workers, you're hanging out, you're watching the flocks, it's just another night watching the flocks, and then all of a sudden, the Shekinah glory of God lights up the sky, and there's an angel declaring the things that are transpiring, and then suddenly the whole host of angels are there singing glory to God in the highs, and then suddenly, bam! It's just back to pitch black again. And you're like, did you just see that? Or is this me? Did I just hallucinate with like the craziest hallucination I've ever just seen? They're like, no, we saw it also. And you're just like, what was that? And you just, you're stunned. You're just speechless you don't even know what to do after an experience like that and then i think one of them goes think we should like do what the angel said (laughs) and it's like 
okay, you know, I think that's a good idea. And, and they're just, they're besides themselves uh, here. And it says in verse 15, and so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, <laughs> that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And, uh, and so here's what happens. They are sent, ready, on a scavenger hunt. <laughs> the, they're to go into the city, and they're going to look around for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths that's lying in a feed trough. On your market set, go, okay? And it's like, you know, now, it's interesting to me also on this that these are shepherds. So shepherds, because they feed their flocks and all, they probably know where all the feed troughs are that are located in the city. The city's about a quarter of a mile straight up the hill <laughs> to where the lights all are and they are going to go and they are going to wander around now to try and find where this baby is. Here's the question that I've got. Couldn't God have just given them an address? <laughs> you know, I mean, couldn't he have just said that the baby, you're going to find him at the inn, you know, and then they would have known to just go to the inn. And, but we see throughout the scriptures, do you ever notice how God never gives them the addresses of the place? Remember when Jesus now is going to have the Last Supper and he tells the disciples, Go into the thronging city and just look for a guy carrying a pitcher. Follow him wherever he goes, whatever house he goes in. Say, hello, we're here uh, for the Passover. And, and that's exactly the house uh, that it is. He never gives an address. Why is that? Because it's just another step of faith. You see, you just take the next step. And just take the next step and I will lead you and guide you. And you have to trust that I am who I am and that I will lead you. And so these faith walks, the shepherds, go, just go. I've given you enough information and now you have to decide what you're going to do. And so they, they head in, it says in verse 16, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So Mary has just had the child. They've just wrapped him up in the swaddling cloths and they've laid him in the manger. And they're doing what all new parents do with a newborn. They're just staring at him. <laughs> you will never forget as a parent when you first held your first child. That moment is indelibly inscribed in your heart and your life forever. And Mary and Joseph have just held their firstborn. And they've laid him now in the feeding trough, and they're just looking at him. And, and it's just amazing. Their little fingers and their little hands and their toes and their little nose, and then they're just breathing. <laughs> and, and you're just like, I just can't even believe this. This is just unbelievable. This is a baby. And they're sitting there having that moment with the baby and all of a sudden some people walk up. <laughs> and they're like, hi, is that a baby in the feed trough right there? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, okay, I'm sorry to interrupt and um, I know this is going to sound absolutely crazy to you. 
<laughs> but here's the thing. I think that any time that anybody told Mary and Joseph, this is going to sound absolutely crazy to them. They're like, oh no, nothing sounds crazy to us uh, anymore. You just lay it on me. It is impossible for us to be shocked uh, at what is coming next. And they're like, well, there were these angels in the sky and they like lit up the whole sky and sang and told us to come find your baby. <laughs> and Mary and Joseph were like, and they all come. Okay, thank you. We're out. So God bless you. And thanks for letting us look at your baby. And uh, all right, guys, let's take off uh, here. We got to bounce. And, and all of a sudden, they, they leave. <laughs> they depart. And it's just like... You know, what has just happened here again? Just these strangers come up and look at your baby and then they, and then they leave. And, and it says in verse 17, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart and then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. For the rest of their days, they are telling the story of how the night the angels lit up the sky and they went and found the baby exactly as the angels had told them. And, you know, a friend would come over and they're like, no, tell them the story. You haven't heard? Okay, here, sit down. Get a bowl of soup. Let's go. I'll tell you the story. And the rest of their lives, they would tell the story of the night that the sky lit up and they were there. These were the stories that were now going on all around Judea. Now remember that Elizabeth and Zacharias's story was also going on all around Judea. This is the same place. This is all of the towns that are right around Jerusalem. And so all of these strange stories are going on. It says that Mary just She's just collecting them. She's just like, whatever. And I'm just, she's just pondering them. She's putting them into her heart. But you can't make sense of all of the things uh, that are going on. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so they are now to offer up the sacrifice uh, for the Lord. And the requirement under the law was a lamb. And so they were supposed to offer a lamb. But if you didn't have enough money for a lamb, you could substitute a pair of doves. And as they are dedicating the Lamb of God, they don't even have enough money to purchase a lamb to dedicate the Lamb of God. And it just shows the humble origin and the financial state of Mary and Joseph as they are just embarking now 
on this incredible faith journey that God has led them on. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute to verse 16. And in verse 16, it says of the shepherds that they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph. And so to come with haste means that there is a a recognition of an expediency according to a a, a time stamp to it. It means that you're, you're not waiting or procrastinating or delaying, that you are immediate in your response. It's interesting if you do a search on the word haste in the New Testament, almost every usage of it has to do with God directing somebody and them not waiting in obeying what God is directing them to. We see that Mary, after Gabriel visits her, she with haste departs and goes to see Elizabeth. We see the shepherds here with haste are directed by the angels now to go and find the the Lord. We see that Zacchaeus, uh, when Jesus is walking underneath the sycamore tree in Jericho and he looks up and he tells him to come down, he says, with haste, because I'm going to dine with you today. When Paul, the apostle, is praying there at the temple and the angel tells him to depart from Jerusalem with haste because they are not going to receive your your testimony. And so we see all of these instructions and we see the, the people then immediately responding to the instruction or the directive that God is giving to them. And And when is the best time to obey God? Now, now is always, with haste, is the best time that there is to obey God. It means don't delay, don't procrastinate, don't do anything else above what the Lord is telling you to do. And there may be some of us today that that is the word that God is giving to us. That he wants you to do what he's told you to do with haste. Because sometimes when we don't want to do it, when we're uncomfortable with it, we can find ways to procrastinate doing what God has called us to do. It's like, yes, God, I hear you. I'm going to do that. Just not right now. I'm very busy and I'm going to get to that. And, and so we just kind of defer God. Sometimes it could be a, a phone call that we're not looking forward to, a conversation with someone. It might be we haven't forgiven somebody or there's a root of bitterness that's taking place in, in our life. We know that we have to do it. I'm just, I'm not ready to do it. Do you ever, do you ever feel, I'm not ready to do that right now? It's like, okay, let's unpack that for a minute. What I'm saying is I'm not ready to do God's will <laughs> in my life right now. And he says, no, with haste. It's not about when... If it's convenient, I'd like you to do God's will in your life. Whenever you're ready, you just take your time. How about now? (laughs) With haste is how God wants to be able to direct us in the things that he is telling us to do. Sometimes it's not about a a relationship or forgiveness. It's about stepping out and and maybe serving something or or being in a ministry or doing something that, that, that you know that you're supposed to be. Or sometimes it's stepping back into something that you've stepped out of and the Lord is now directing you back in. And maybe you got hurt or wounded, but, but the Lord is calling you to return and to do it with haste, with haste. And maybe there isn't anything specific right now that God is saying to you that you can possibly think. And in the absence of the specific, there is the general. And what is the general will that God is directing us into? Loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving others. And to do that with haste. To appreciate 
every single relationship that God has given to you. Because every single relationship in your life, listen to this, is a gift from God. Every single relationship, not just the good ones, but even those irritating ones, even those frustrating ones, even those hard ones, uh, they're a gift in your life. And, and what God is asking you to do is to love every single person in your life, that you are to be connected to him and to then love every single person. The cashier at the store that's giving you the wrong change and that's slowing down the line. Every person that you come in contact with, the stranger to the friend, to the husband, wife, and child, that God is asking you to take his love and to shower them with love. And then he says, and with haste. Don't waste a single day because days are precious and time is precious and God doesn't want us wasting any time on the superfluous so that we miss the important. And what is the single most important thing? Love God and then love everybody that is around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. And Father, may we make haste, (laughs) Lord, with whatever it is that is your will in our life, from the specific to the general. And God, may we love, truly love those that are around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.